Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Anavarapu, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Marco Garrido about his new book, The Patchwork City, Class, Space, and Politics in Metro Manila. Uh, this was published by the University of Chicago Press in August 2019. Uh, Marco Garrido is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, uh, Marco, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here, and congratulations on this fantastic book. Hi, Sneha. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So, Marco, as is tradition with the New Books Network, we were wondering if you could start with telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to become a sociologist. Sure. Um, well, I didn't study sociology in college. I was an English major, and in fact, I I focused on creative writing, particularly poetry. I didn't even imagine graduate school as an undergraduate. What happened was I finished college and um, I I went to the Philippines and I worked in a few en- different NGOs and then I worked as a journalist. And so I spent a few years there. And over the years that I spent there, I collected a number of questions that I felt I couldn't really answer through journalistic work. Um, and after a few years, I ended up applying to graduate school, and it really didn't matter which which program, social sciences generally, so I applied to development studies, I applied to political science, anything that would allow me to, to study more about the Philippines, to read more, to research more, and to think more about it. Um, and I got into the sociology program at the University of Michigan, and that's really where my first engagement with sociology began. And um, it just seemed natural that I'd end up, I'd end up studying the Philippines as a result of that program. So, Marco, I mean, we're going to jump straight to the book now, and I guess uh, all our listeners would want to know how did you come to write the Patchwork City? Like, how did it all begin? Um, was it at grad school? Like, what happened with it? Well, the idea actually originated well before graduate school. So, like I said, after college, I spent a few years uh, living and working in Manila and all around the Philippines. Um, and during those years, uh, around 2001, the early 2000s, I was in the country when uh, this demonstration called EDSA 3 or EDSA 3 happened, and that features centrally in the book. Um, so EDSA 3 was a demonstration consisting largely of the urban poor in support of um, a populist president, Joseph Estrada. And it was the largest demonstration of urban poor people that the country has ever seen. Um, some estimates suggest that over the course of seven weeks, there were about a million and a half people in, in Metro Manila. And the demonstration culminated in a march on the presidential palace of about 150,000 people. And this was completely unprecedented. And so I was in the country at the time, and this happened in 2001. And um, I observed how people reacted to it. You know, people were making fun of the demonstrators. They were um, saying nasty things about them, uh, about their teeth, about how they were criminals, how they were dirty. Um, and I just remember that environment. And in fact, you know, I too couldn't understand why these people would demonstrate, would protest in support of a president who was clearly bad, who had been ousted um, because of corruption charges. Um, 
he seemed completely incompetent. I didn't understand, as as many middle class Filipinos didn't, why why so many people would turn out in support of him. Um, and so I, I really, uh, you know, so I, all these people coming out was a puzzle to me. But so was the reaction and the the vehemence, the you know, the emotion that middle class Filipinos, middle class observers, including you know the newspapers of notes you know, that they, that they showed the scorn that they showed towards the demonstrators. And that stayed with me, that impacted me. Um, and so when I went into graduate school a few years later, I decided to study it. Um, and so the idea of the project really emerged before I was even in graduate school, but, but it began as my dissertation. And so, you know, I, I remember submitting my, um, uh, proposal in about 2008. The book was published a little over 10 years later. So it's been a long time. Yeah, I guess that's um, generally the story of academic books. <laughs> but I, I must say that the book just is so timely and relevant. Um, I mean, even today and in many cities across the global south. Um, so in the book, you have divided the very rich ethnographic and historical data into two parts. In the first part, you talk about an urban spatial form that you call interspersion and walk us through the housing divide in Metro Manila. And specifically, we get such a rich sort of understanding of the social worlds inhabited by middle-class residents and gated communities and squatters are um, people that live in what you call slums or the urban poor broadly, right? And then in part two, you connect it to how the experiences in these residential um, or rather along the residential divide come to inform political positions and political subjectivities. Now, to me, the most compelling part of the book was precisely the fact that you blend in the urban with the political so beautifully. And I was hoping that you would talk a lot more about this for our curious listeners. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because for most people, the book, you know, the name of the book is The Patchwork City. And uh, the focus of the first part, as you pointed out, is really on class segregation between the urban poor and the urban middle class living in slums and these middle class enclaves, respectively. Um, but that's not really where the book started. As I said, the book started with a question that was squarely political. And so in some ways, I started off as a political sociologist, even though now um, people might recognize the book as a, as a piece of urban sociology. But it really began with a question of why, as I said, first of all, why the urban poor turned out in such numbers for this president. What was it about him? He was bad for them. Um, he was feckless. He was incompetent. He was corrupt. And yet something about him made them love him. Um, and, you know, the other aspect of that was why the middle class heaped such scorn upon the urban poor. Um, and it was really these kinds of class dynamics that fascinated me. Um, and so really, that it's really in thinking about that question that I came to focus on urban space. And so I really began in fieldwork, I really began asking about why the urban poor would support. I asked the urban poor why they supported Joseph Estrada. Um, and at first, it wasn't very clear to me. They they would say things like, he helped them. But I knew that he didn't help them. I knew statistically 
you know, all the indicators showed that their situations got worse during his term as president. Um, and then in, in the course of interviews, um, they would say that he helped them. And the question really became why they believed that he helped them, why his appeals had such credibility. And they would talk about him being a good person and they would illustrate with all kinds of stories um, and stories that I had trouble understanding the significance of until later. They would talk about how he ate, for example, or that he would be sick one day or that he would deliver groceries to this or that slum. Um, you know, things that seemed utterly unremarkable, even trivial, uh, but held so much importance for them. It was really only, you know, it, so this set of stories, these stories about Estrada's sincerity, about his goodness, um, they told alongside another whole set of stories that had to do with experiences of discrimination, experiences of being treated as less than, of uh, being humiliated, being made to feel ashamed, being made to feel dirty, um, being made to feel like disgusting creatures. And a lot of these stories took place at the hands of their neighbors, you know, people, people who lived in middle-class enclaves across the street or nearby them, or these would be encounters in the urban environment. Um, and I began to wonder about how the urban environment and, you know, the spatial disposition of these people, how that, how that affected their class relations and their experiences of discrimination. So in addition to talking to urban poor, I would talk to the middle-class folks who lived oftentimes very nearby these slum areas, either across the street or, you know, down the road, or sometimes they'd be even closer side by side. Um, and then I began to wonder whether this configuration, this proximity between these two kinds of spaces, you know, why I was seeing so, why I was seeing it so often. And so I ended up um, collecting a lot of spatial data and, and drawing maps and uh, trying to figure out um, what the city looked like overall. And in the course of this work, I really started focusing on the segregation of these spaces, but it, it wasn't a segregation that that looked like, you know, when we talk about segregation in Chicago, for instance, we talk about we talk about um, so-called ghettos in the south side and in the west side. It wasn't like that. It was slum areas spread out across the city alongside middle-class enclaves also spread out across the city. So it was really um, a configuration of interspersion, as I call it in the book. And so the book suggests that this interspersion, um, this proximity essentially between people who live in these kinds of spaces allows for greater interaction, but it's a particular kind of interaction. Um, it's interaction characterized mainly by discrimination. It's unequal interaction. Um, and the fact that this configuration has been has been generalized means that there's much more of this kind of discrimination happening, and that's had the effect of really worsening class relations, really defining class relations first of all along spatial lines, but also worsening them in recent decades. Um, and that I think helped me understand the. Uh, how important class was, the class dynamic at play, um, and why both the urban poor and, 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 and the middle class, um, and when they reacted to this, this figure, Joseph Estrada, it was in terms that was undeniably classist. There was a sense, for example, among the urban poor that, um, among the middle class, that the urban poor had no right to decide 
Um, they have no right to decide who should be president, that anything they say should be discounted because they lack the competence to be able to to be able to speak politically, to be able to say something politically. Meanwhile, the, the urban poor, um, the only way to really understand their love of Estrada, the only way I could understand it was to put it in a context of everyday discrimination. The reason trivial acts of kindness by Estrada, trivial acts of consideration, the fact that they remember that he hugged them, um, you know, that he, um, that he would eat with his hands, that he would go into slums with very few escorts, these kinds of things, that he would treat them decently, in other words. The only reason, uh, I came to understand that the reason these acts stood out to them was because they were so used to being degraded in their everyday life. In other words, the only way to, to understand Estrada's sincerity, to understand his power, his charisma, was to really put it in the context of everyday discrimination. And again, this discrimination, I suggest, one of its main sources, not its only source, but one of its main sources, had to do with how the urban environment had changed um, in the past 30 or 40 years. And so that's how I ended up, in some ways, becoming an urban sociologist, almost accidentally while trying to answer a, a political question. Right. Um, so I think you talk a little bit about boundary imposition in your book, and a lot of your conceptual framework is um, trying to figure out something about boundaries, right? So do you want to say a little more about the theoretical framework or who you were inspired by while you were thinking about this book? Sure, absolutely. And so let me say a word first about boundary imposition and then talk more about some of the main conceptual ideas, some of the main ideas that help structure um, how I thought about how I analyzed uh, the material. Uh, so boundary imposition, that comes from Tilly's work. Um, and really the idea here is that interactions in the urban environment come to be characterized by the imposition of boundaries. And so um, precisely because of interspersion, precisely because groups that are seen as socially different, um, urban poor and the middle class, are side by side. And in other words, uh, they're, they're proximate and interaction is more likely. There's an increase in boundary imposition. Um, the middle class impose boundaries upon the urban poor. Now, the most obvious boundaries are, are walls and gates, but it also so happens that even within gates, but other different kinds of spatial boundaries are imposed. The presence of the urban poor are circumscribed, for instance, or in malls, they're surveilled uh, or made to feel like they don't belong in these kinds of places. Um, and boundary imposition really is a form of discrimination, but it's a very particular form of discrimination that's really spatial in character. Um, meanwhile, on the other side, uh, the experience of boundary imposition is really one of exclusion, of being made to feel like you don't belong, of, like you're out of place. Um, and I found this this boundary imposition was a more precise way to think about uh, the nature of unequal interaction that was happening between these two groups and the nature of discrimination, really, that was happening, that really foregrounded the spatial component, the component of, of exclusion. Um, so I mentioned Charles Tilley, who was one, um, certainly one source of, of my thinking, in this book. The other is really Georg Zimmel, um, and his more formal approach to sociology, and really the notion of categorical inequality. And, uh, you know, so this, your viewers might recognize that, um, you know, the, the phrase categorical inequality is indebted to Tilly. So this is true. 
um, but it's also inspired by Zimmel's distinction between the form and content of social interaction. And so Zimmel called our attention to the form of social interaction. For instance, interaction can be categorically unequal. That is to say, interaction between two parties um, is not just unequal, but to say that it's categorically unequal means the two parties are seen as different social groups. In other words, their uh, interaction is organized around a social boundary. That's important, he said, because you can have an interaction that has many different kinds of, that can take many different kinds of content. For instance, it can be marked by hostility and somebody wants to exclude you. And so that happens. But it can also encompass, um, in terms of content, interactions that are marked or characterized by, say, charity. And so this helped me explain something. On, it helped me it helped me really explain the complexity of the kind of relations I was seeing on the ground, because it's not true that the middle class just exclude the urban poor, that they, that they reject them, that they fear them. Um, all this is true, of course, but it's not just that. Um, I also saw a lot of interactions that could be characterized by help, by charity, by benefaction. And so, um, the middle class very powerfully express a feeling of social responsibility towards their poorer neighbors, and that manifests in help, in um, conducting medical missions, bringing them inside their enclaves to partake, say, of bazaars or charity drives, to give away food. Um, and yet I also noticed that this kind of interaction, this, this charity, for instance, was compatible with discrimination, with exclusion. Just because they helped them didn't mean that they saw them as equal. It, it, it could mean that along with this help, there was still discrimination. They still maintained the social boundary. They still saw them as less than. And let me illustrate to kind of bring home the point. Um, I'll give you two examples. So, for instance, one example is uh, you know one enclave that I talk about in my book. They have um, you know there was a there was a fire in the slum across the street, and um, people fled the slum and and um, they went out into the street. And so the people who who lived in the village or the enclave, they um, they saw the people they saw the people pouring out of San Roque, which is the slum, and they went to secure their gates. Now, at first, they were scared of looters. They were thinking, well, these people are coming out of the slum. They're going to try to get into our, our enclave, and we need to make sure that doesn't happen. But then they took pity on them, and they, the Homeowners Association decided to let a certain group in, mostly women and children, and to keep them in the basketball court and to feed them over the course of three or five days. They called them refugees, and these were the people right across the street. Now, this is a benevolent act. They took them in. They took care of them. Um, you know, they, they, they gave them clothes, they gave them food, but they also made sure that their movements were carefully circumscribed. By this, I mean, they mobilized their different security forces, made sure that the people wouldn't go past the basketball court, even to the park right beside the court. Um, they couldn't go to other parts of the building if they wanted to leave the enclave. They had to get permission. In other words, their presence was very carefully monitored. And so it's still consistent with a view of these people as criminal and as dangerous, even though they were helping them in the process. Another more pithy example is, you know, the same village um, lets in squatter kids from San Roque on Halloween, right? 
And so again, this is a benevolent act. They open their gates and they allow the kids from the slum across the street into their village to trick or treat. But they don't do it at the same time as they let their kids trick or treat. So they let their kids trick or treat from five to seven. And then they wrap up and they let in the kids from San Roque or the slum in from seven to nine. And so again, you begin to see how complicated these relationships are. On the one hand, you know, these are not malevolent interactions. These are benevolent ones in the name of charity, in the name of benefaction. At the same time, they're perfectly compatible with discrimination. They keep intact the sense of the, the social boundary that exists, organizing interactions between these two different parties. And so when I say categorical inequality, that's, that's what I mean. It can accommodate different kinds, different contents, right? different kinds of interaction. But its form, there's something about its form um, that remains consistent, and that has to do with a social boundary that's structuring the relationship between the two parties. And so conceptually, that for me, really helped me understand and allow for the complexity of these kinds of relationships. Right. I mean, that I think really beautifully summed up, perhaps the biggest strength of the book is to account for these sort of variations in terms of content. But yeah, this is really interesting. Um, I think you also perhaps then build on this to talk about what you call dissensus, right, in the second part of the book. So how uh, would you mind telling us a little more about that? Sure. So by dissensus, the concept comes from Jacques Ranciere. Um, the idea is, well, the idea is that you can see this, you can look at the same thing and one party can say it looks like it looks black and the other party can say it looks white. In other words, it's not because one party misunderstands uh, or one party lacks information. And so where they provided the full information, they would say, oh, you're right. It's black. Right. No, both parties, given their social situation, given their experience, are led to see the same object in antithetical ways, in profoundly different and irreconcilable ways. Now, I find the concept useful because in the case of, say, Estrada in this Ed Cetres, I found that the urban poor and the middle class thought of Estrada in, in ways that just couldn't be reconciled. They saw different things. They interpreted him differently. Um, and their interpretations really followed from their experience. Now, the concept to me becomes interesting in the con- when you join it with, with – when you think about dissensus in the context of democracy. Um, now, oftentimes – there's this notion that in democracy, when there's disagreement, um, this disagreement can be bridged through deliberation. In other words, if the two parties just talk, if they're able to talk, they can hammer out their difference and come to some agreed upon middle point. I'm not sure that's the case. Certainly in, in, in a place like the Philippines, given high levels of social inequality, and given the very different social situations of the urban poor and the middle class, despite their proximity, um, what struck me is that, again, you know, one group said, Estrada looks like this, this is who he is. And another group said, no, this is who Estrada is. And their, their understandings, their frameworks were completely different. Um, and it's interesting to me to think, it's, inter- it's interesting to me to think about what this means in the context of democracy, when deliberation seems not, perhaps impossible, per- because the two parties come from such different places, what does the census mean when you take the census seriously as an outcome of democracy in a socially unequal polis- polity? 
it, it seems to me that that um, thinking about the census as an outcome of democracy might be helpful instead of instead of, for instance, thinking, well, one party is disadvantaged and should they become more fully advantaged, should they have more information, then they would see things the way the way we do. Sometimes disagreement or dissensus is an outcome that makes sense and is natural. And so the question is, what do you do about it? Um, and I think I'm suggesting in the book, I suggest that sometimes it's important to hold both viewpoints together. In other words, not to adjudicate or to um, to step back from adjudicating and saying this one's right and this one's wrong and to say some people see it this way and some people see it this way and to hold those two viewpoints together because what often happens is that one viewpoint subordinates the other and this has to do with the viewpoint being more powerful um, and it gets recast into a question, questions of, well, one's right and one's wrong. You know, this is the right viewpoint and this is the, this is the wrong one. But I think it might be more helpful um, from an ethical point of view even to think of, to hold the two views, seeing them as irreconcilable, but to hold them together, to make them both visible, to air them out equally. In some ways, I think that that means taking democracy seriously um, and using democracy in a way to... Um, to control for how power functions in the world um, and to allow people who are often invisible, who are often voiceless, to give them a chance to speak, not to say that they're right, but to say that this is how they see things. And that, I think, is important. Yeah, I mean, that's really beautifully put. And I think one of my favorite things about the book is that at no point do the poor come across as being either irrational or unagentic, but you show very beautifully through such elegant ethnographic data that they too are negotiating power in everyday life. But um, towards the end, especially the the understanding of populism and as being, uh, you know, mediated through this like dissensus um, juxtaposition almost was really, really compelling uh, for me as a reader. Um, at this point, I think I want to switch gears and maybe ask you, about methodology so and positionality in Metro Manila. How did you do this study and how were you placed vis-a-vis the people that you spoke to? Um, and perhaps if you could uh, share with us some of your ethnographic dilemmas. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I could speak the language, but I think I stuck out as an outsider. Um, and I didn't try to hide it. I also came when, especially when I did my field work in informal settlements in the slum areas in Manila, it was very clear that that I wasn't a resident, that I didn't belong, even though I spent a good amount of time there. Um, and sometimes it made for the most the most vivid ethnographic stories. The, the you know, in some ways, it made for the best data. Let me let me give you an example. Um, you know, oftentimes, so often we talk about, I would talk with my informants who lived in informal settlements. We would talk about instances of discrimination. Um, and it's one thing to, it's one thing to simply, um, to simply, you know, 
try to sum it up or describe it, but what became harder to convey was the kind of pain that it involved. And the fact that it's one thing to say that squatters are stigmatized, but really to capture, you know, the shame that comes with that, the the feeling that they're just seen as disgusting creatures, that touch is implicated, um, that just touching them um, is like a kind of contamination, that being a squatter is is really encountering it is is it, it's. You know, they would talk about how people would use hand sanitizer after coming into contact with them, for instance. And so, you know, to, to get back to the question of methods. Um, so when we talk about this, for instance, I'll give you a couple of examples to make it more concrete. One woman, um, one, one woman would talk about how people would, when they found out that you came from the slum, that they would shirk away from her. They'd shrink away, they'd back away, that they, they didn't want to be in contact with her. And almost as if to test me, she she said, they would take your hand and she, she'd take my hand. And it was a hard, you know, it was, it was callous, it was rough. And she would take my hand as if to see if I would shrink away. And she'd say, they'd take their hand and the other person would back away. And she would just hold on to my hand. And, you know, she held on to it for several minutes for much of the rest of the interview, just as if daring me to see, to, to, to pull away, just testing me to see if, if in fact I shared um, a similar kind of reaction to her. In another case, I, you know, I was in an informal settlement doing a set of interviews over the course of several weeks, and I was interviewing one person when another person who I had interviewed a few days ago came up to me and said she had made um, a plate of spaghetti. It was her birthday, and in the Philippines, they often have spaghetti, and so she wanted to give me some of the spaghetti. Now, I had just eaten, so I wasn't hungry, plus I was in the middle of an interview. And so, really unthinkingly, I said, no, thank you. I'm not hungry. Uh, I just want to, I'm I'm trying to finish this interview right now. And all of a sudden I noticed that she, she looked very hurt. You know, she had a very pained look on her face. Um, And then she said to me, you just don't want to eat it because I made it and you think it's dirty. And then I suddenly realized, uh, you know, I was playing into the same, um, you know, I was, I suddenly realized that unthinkingly, you know, unintentionally on my part, but nevertheless, that I had, I had slighted her in a way that I should have been able to understand. And so I said, I said, okay, I'll take it, please. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm busy. I'm, I'm doing my interview, but I would love to eat it. And so what she did is she packed it up in a plastic bag and she gave it to me. And then as she gave it to me, she implored me. She said, please don't just throw it away. And I said, of course not. I'm not going to throw it away. Um, and sure enough, I took it with me. I took it home to eat. Um, and I was I was doing a homestay at a middle class resident uh, at a, mis- a middle class residence, and I, I brought it in. And um, the you know the matron of the house asked, "Where did you get that food from?" And I said, "Well, I was doing field work, and I got it from there." And she said, "Well, let me throw it away." <laughs> and, and and so you know she just assumed that it was dirty because of where it had come from and who had given it to me. So of course, of course, I ate it. Of course, I didn't throw it away. But but my point is that it's not just, it wasn't just something I studied. In some ways, um, it really came home to me because I was implicated in these very kinds of, in these in these interactions of discrimination and the feelings of pain and being in some, in, at some points, the person to inflict the pain. Um, and so I'm very much involved in, 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 in the data. And, and as you'll see from the book, I include myself in the conversations precisely to make it clear that I'm one of the speakers. 
um, and not an infallible one, but a profoundly fallible one, um, and completely implicated in these kinds of dynamics myself, even though I'm the analyst. Right, yeah, and I think these um, examples just are just so, like, resonate, I think, with anyone doing ethnography in, I guess, like, difficult um, circumstances and situations, because very often you're faced with these dilemmas, but thank you for sharing that. I think that was, um, it's also quite, it's making yourself vulnerable is such a difficult thing to do sometimes in academic writing. Um, I guess I was wondering if uh, the people that you had interviewed and spent time with, whether they'd had a chance to read some of the stuff that you've written, whether they had some thoughts on it, or, I mean, I know that it's, it's a practice that it really depends on the person who's writing it, but I was wondering if, you had done something like that? Oh, that's a great question, Sneha. I, I think about that all the time, actually. Now, the book's recently out, and um, you know I'm planning to return to the country in a few months. And um, among my informants in the informal set- settlements, I, I don't think anybody's read it, although I plan to bring some copies. Whether they'll read it or not and how they'll react, I'm not sure. Um, but I'm particularly nervous about how my middle-class informants will receive it, and they're more likely to read it. Um, and, um, you know, going back to an earlier, earlier point, uh, it was my intention to try to portray the full humanity of both uh, the squatters and middle-class residents. Um, you know, not to not to caricature either one. And so that meant being sympathetic to the plight and to the situation of both groups as, as fully as possible. Um, so, sorry about that. Um, and in order to do that, um, in order to do that, you know, with the middle class, for instance, you know, I tried to show why they would think the things they did, why they would... Um, see people who lived in formal settlements as potential criminals, why they would see them as politically incompetent and why it mattered to their lives, how it made a difference. And I tried to understand their position without, without trying to judge it necessarily. And it's my hope that that comes across. It's my fear that, um, well, simply that they'll disagree and, and, um, Yeah, I don't often agree with the way they see things. In fact, the thing I, I take issue at is is kind of the folk perception of of how squatters are viewed. Um, and you know, it's to I, I certainly don't see myself as defending a political figure like Joseph Estrada. I mean, politically, it should be clear that I don't support him. Um, but I tried to make clear why many of my informants in slum areas did support him, what they saw in him. Um, And so I I hope it's not taken as an endorsement of Estrada and his politics. And so in other words, what I'm saying is that I fear that um, parts of the book might be understood when my intention was to try to humanize all parties as well as I could. I think that's the prime, in some ways, the prime imperative of all ethnography. Um, And so whether that happens or not, whether the book will be uh, misinterpreted, misread, 
Um, that's one thing that I have to admit makes me nervous. And I, I don't really know. It's still too early. But I'm sure I'll find out <laughs> in the next few months. Um, well, yeah, I mean, that is often a dilemma that I think all of us deal with. And I certainly feel very nervous about people that I'm writing about not being happy with the way they're represented. But, <laughs> um, you know, I, I was curious about one thing is that class seems to be perhaps the most uh, important social division in your book, but were there other competing sort of uh, social divisions that you wanted to perhaps shed light on, but uh, they didn't like, emerge from the data, perhaps say religion or uh, ethnicity or rural urban belongingness or anything of that sort? No, that's a great question. And it's true. I focus on, on class very deliberately and also in some ways to the exclusion of other important social divisions. In some ways, I was intentionally blind to other things in order to focus more squarely um, on class as understood in spatial terms, as understood as in terms of um, you know belonging in informal settlements versus these middle-class enclaves. But it's certainly not, you know, anybody who knows these countries or just social life in general knows how messy and complex it is and knows that often there are multiple uh, social divisions that are in competition, that overlap, that reinforce each other, that intersect. Um, and that's, it's, it's, it's certainly true in the case of the Philippines. Um, it really depends on the situation, of course, right? Sometimes gender matters tremendously. Sometimes um, provincial origin or ethnicity are uh, Less so religion, although some, but again, that depends on the situation that activates or triggers it. So all of this, all of these things matter, and I don't want to give the impression that class is the most important uh, or is the only uh, social division, but it is a very powerful one, and I wanted to highlight it again, very intentionally, to the exclusion of other ones in order in order to foreground it. Um, but it's certainly not the case that other social divisions in other situations also don't matter. Um, it's, it's just, it's, you know, it really had to do with the kind of argument, argument I was making, uh, and the analytical framework I had applied to, um, to, to the case at hand. And so in the book, I use the phrase dualist reading, right? It's, mm -hmm. in other words, it's not a complete reading. It's not a mapping of um, of all the dynamics that are happening socially. It's not completely exhaustive. It's a focus on um, class relations specific, class relations specifically, and even then a very specific kind of class relations, not labor relations, but spatial relations, um, ecological relations, not employment ones. Um, and so it, it's, it's very deliberate that my focus is, 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 um, is narrow. It's, but that's in order to that's in order to really bring it out and develop it as much as I as much as I can. Right. Well, that's really helpful to know. Thank you. Um, I guess my last question about this book would be: I know that there is there are parts of the book where you talk about this being generalizable or potentially generalizable to other places and contexts. So, if you want to say a few words about that, sure. So. You know, I'm careful about exporting the whole story, the whole argument, mm -hmm. wholesale to other places, even just other similar places in the global south. I think, I think in general, the, the, the framework and the various concepts I use 
can be uh, disaggregated and used um, in parts of them applied um, in other places. Maybe they're useful in helping guide how people understand and see they can serve as hypotheses, for instance, um, that remain to be tested on the basis of, of, of data in other places. So, for instance, the notion of interspersion as a form of segregation. Now, that might be useful in understanding urban space um, exclusion and inequality in places like the Philippines, maybe in, say, Sao Paulo or Istanbul, or, you know, these kinds of places. The notion of boundary imposition might be useful more generally for, for, for other kinds of situations or the census, as you mentioned, for thinking about democracy um, and disagreement. And so, you know, our analysis, my analysis, you know, it, it, um, it was born out of a specific empirical context, out of a particular case. And my job as, as an ethnographer would, is to wrestle with the thick details of the case, to render it as thickly as possible. And so the analysis is very much grounded. And I think that's true for all kinds of analyses. And I'm wary of, of, um, you know, of, of kind of generalizing without without roots, without concreteness, without an acknowledgement of, of uh, the embeddedness of, of our ideas. That said, um, I think the ideas can be taken, as I said, as hypotheses, and then, and you can take them and test them and see, well, you know, Garrido has this idea about interspersion. Does this apply here in this city? How, how might it help us think about what's happening? Um, so, so that's how I'm approaching generalizability, not taking an argument wholesale, erasing mm-hmm. it, scrubbing it of context and just applying it elsewhere. Rather, an argument is, is, a, is comprised of a set of ideas. You can take some of those ideas, some of them might apply, some of them might not, but they always need to be reconfigured in terms of the new context, in terms of your new cases. Yeah, I think I love that idea. It almost feels like, you know, like, your ideas are like a quiver of arrows, you know. Um, well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. But before I close this interview, I would love to know what you're working on right now and what the future holds for in terms of more of your work. Okay, happy to talk about that. Um, so my new project is really focused on the middle class's experience of democracy really beginning in the Philippines, because that's the case I know best. And it was really inspired by my previous research. Um, I was really struck by how in my interviews about Estrada and about class, conversations inevitably veered to the state of democracy, um, particularly among the middle class. And um, given recent events, given the coming into power of Rodrigo Duterte, um, the kind of the right wing turn in Philippine politics. I think all of that, I think one way of understanding all of that is really to focus on what democracy has meant, what it's felt like, how people have experienced it in a country like the Philippines. And I think there's insufficient attention paid to the experience of democracy, um, particularly in places like the Philippines, in these so-called third wave countries that have been democratic for only a few decades now. Well, you know, how have their feelings changed about democracy? What do they want from democracy? What are their aspirations? What are their fantasies with respect to democracy? I think all of this stuff is important to document now um, because it's changed and it's always changing. But um, 
how they feel about it, how they think about it, how they experience it now helps us understand why somebody like Duterte, a strongman, somebody who promises to discipline democracy, why he appeals to them. You know, Duterte's support is particularly strong among the most educated, people with the highest income in a place like Metro Manila. Why is that? A guy like Estrada, his appeal was among the poor. And in some ways, that's the classical image of populism. Um, a la Peron, for instance. But not so these days. A lot of the people who have come into power, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, even Modi in India, um, Duterte in the Philippines, a lot of their support comes from this new middle class. And so I think it's imperative to really think about what in their experience, why, why these folks and why their appeals resonate, what in their experience leads them to uh, be predisposed to these strongman appeals, appeals for discipline. And again, my instinct really as an ethnographer leads me to think about what democracy has meant to them, what's, what the experience of it is like. And so that's where I'm going to begin. Um, and then I'm going to see whether it applies in other cases. So I'm going to try to be more comparative this time and, and um, develop a scheme on the basis of ethnographic work in the Philippines and then see if it works in other places, in India, for instance, in Brazil. Yes. Wow, Marco, that sounds like a really great and very, very timely project. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure all of our listeners will really enjoy it. Um, take care, especially in these times of absolute uncertainty and uh, distress. Um, all right, then. Thank you so much. And have a good evening. Thank you so much, Neha. This really was a pleasure. 